Bandwidth for this podcast is brought to you by CashFly at C-A-C-H-E-F-L-Y dot com. This episode is brought to you by Squarespace.com, the fast and easy way to publish a high-quality website or blog. For a free trial and 10% off your new account, go to squarespace.com slash twip. This week on Twip, Hasselblad opens the kimono, paparazzi ethics, oxymoron or polymorons, and special guest host Ray Maxwell. All that and more on episode number 149 of This Week in Photography. And we are back for another episode of This Week in Photography. I'm your host, Frederick Van Johnson. Today on the show, we've got a new guest, a new co-host slash guest, because I'm going to treat him as a co-host, and I'm going to grill him a little bit as a guest. His name is Ray Maxwell. Uh, Ray, how are you? I'm doing great. Thanks for coming on and uh, and agreeing to to let us pick your brain today. (laughs) And also on the show, we've got, of course, the old twipper. The curmudgeon, Mr. Ron Brinkman. Hey, Ron. <laughs> Good morning. Good to be back. It's a rainy day in Los Angeles today. You know, it's pretty nasty up here in Petaluma, too. It's, uh, yeah. it's, uh, what was Steve? Steve, I was talking to Steve on the way up, and Steve Simon was saying, uh, or I was telling him that it's a 5 6 day because he was like, is this. Because I I told him, what did you say, Steve? Who's also on the show, by the way? Welcome, Steve. What what did you say? You said is it F five six? I just wanted up there? to know if the weather was, you know, give me an aperture so I could, you know, get a sense of what it looks like. And five point six seems to be the, uh, you know, not a lot of bright light out there. Exactly. You said it was F five point six, and I said no, it's five six F. It's fifty six degrees up here. So, exactly. so you had it. You had it close. Uh, so, uh, this, the show will be pretty interesting because we're not going to do an inserted recorded guest today because we have Ray here. So I wanted to take this opportunity to, uh, to kind of find out what our newest addition to co-hosting on this week in photography, what, what his background is and why photography or when he got bitten by that old radioactive photography spider. So Ray, when, uh, what, what's your, what's your history with photography and why do you love it? Well, uh, it, I got bitten by it very, very early. Uh, my father had a folding Kodak camera, which I still have in my collection, that he carried through World War II. And uh, I got a little box camera when I was a little kid. And then when I was 10 years old, I uh, worked at our grocery store, 25 cents an hour, saved up my money, and got an Argus C3. And if anybody knows what one of those ancient... 35, and I shot slides with Kodachrome that was ASA 10. <laughs> but wow. uh, in my working career, I became an electronics engineer. I worked in the area of remote sensing. I designed some special early digital cameras for uh, the Canadian Center for Remote Sensing while working at a company called MDA. And uh, I did satellite ground stations and then later went to a company called Creo, which is now part of Kodak. And uh, there I did color science, worked in the proofing area on inkjet proofing and halftone proofing systems, and worked with other color scientists who did the media for uh, those products, uh, people at Kodak, Imation, DuPont, and uh, Fuji. So that's, that's my background in a nutshell. 
Awesome. Okay, we're gonna we're gonna definitely come back to that stuff because I have some I have some really deep questions to ask you about color theory and <clears throat> specifically how it rates to digital photography today and should photographers really care? Um, I know they should care, but can they? You know, is it is it a whack a mole game? You know, with with calibrating your your display to your printer to you know, to all these things. So I want to I want to ask the source you know how these how amateur photographers advanced amateur and pro photographers should be attacking the the idea of staying color managed all the way through but before we do that i want to give a quick nod to our sponsor squarespace at squarespace.com like we mentioned last week uh, they've announced new social widgets and if you're not familiar with squarespace there they're basically a fast and easy way to publish a high-quality website or blog. It's all WYSIWYG, drag-and-drop. It's all hosted online in the cloud. It's a software-as-a-service sort of deal where uh, you log in with a username and password, go in there, configure your site, your website or blog with a membership area like Joseph Linaski has on Travel Junk or on uh, uh, ApertureExpert.com or... You know, any number of other things. Now, with the social widgets, they've enabled a native Twitter widget to allow you to add multiple accounts and sort of bring Twitter into your site. Um, a native Flickr widget to bring, and then that, that's what we care about, of course. So you can bring in lots of uh, or images from multiple accounts in varied layouts and also a native RSS feed widget so you can bring in content from other rss feeds and incorporate them into your your overall sites we've got hundreds of design templates to choose from um, blogging modules photo galleries on and on and on so basically however you conceive of how you want your web presence to look whether it be a blog a regular website or a a gallery whatever you want to build you can go over to scorespace.com and execute it all online without ever writing a line of code if you don't want to. So if you want a free trial on squarespace.com, head over to squarespace.com forward slash TWIP, T-W-I-P. You don't need a credit card. Um, try it out. Build your own website. And if you decide to purchase it, you'll get 10% off when you enter the offer code T-W-I-P. Once again, that's squarespace.com forward slash TWIP. All right, guys, let's jump into the news now. Uh, first off, that camera that was sitting behind Ray, ironically, and it was not a plant, but this first news item is about Hasselblad. They've released Focus 2.5 for the Mac, um, which is their, their image management software. But they've also, uh, which is the interesting piece of the story, in my opinion, they've enabled uh, third-party file support. So... Not only well, you know, traditionally, like the the big camera manufacturers, most of them have their own software out there that will read files from their cameras and do all the magic, and it's their their own sauce. And they're hoping that you use that. Um, but Hasselblad has opened it up, so now you can read in other third party files from other cameras and other other file formats, respectively. Now, Ray, I'll put it on you first, since you have a Hasselblad and presumably some experience with the company, like you said. What uh, uh, what do you think about that? Is that a good thing that they're opening it up, or should, contrary, I always do the or, or should the camera manufacturers solely focus on making great cameras and leave software design to folks like Apple and Adobe and Microsoft? Well, it's interesting uh, that they're opening up because this is the actual inverse of what they did over a year ago, uh, which, by the way, in the medium format world, really upset a lot of professional photographers. Uh, Let me just give you that history. Hasselblad, 
up until a year and a half, two years ago, uh, a lot of people who were using them were using them with both phase and leaf backs. Hmm. And phase and leaf were the market leaders in digital backs for the medium format cameras. And a company called Imicon was a distant third. And what happened is if you, my understanding, now I'm going by memory here, was that if you look up who is the president of Hasselblad today, it's the former president of Imicon. So uh, the two companies were combined, and uh, after they were combined, about a year after they combined, they closed the Hasselblad camera to leaf and phase. And Michael Reichman on the Luminous Landscape uh, website uh, wrote an essay about it, if you want to look it up, and he threw a fit because he was a longtime user of phase backs with Hasselblad bodies, and he said, the camera manufacturer should not tell me what kind of film to use. And uh, mm-hmm. he was really upset with Hasselblad. So this is a bit of about at least a partial uh, opening up, and uh, we'll see what happens. But uh, Leaf and Phase, have, uh, well, Phase finally bought out Leaf, so they're, but they're supporting both lines now. And uh, it'll be interesting to see what happens in the medium format area. Yeah. Now, Ron Brinkman, what do you think about this? I mean, just to put a finer point on it, do the, of course, Hasselblad opened it up and they're allowing third-party file support. But I think the bar- broader question is, should they? Should these guys, camera manufacturers, like I was saying before, focus, no pun intended, focus <laughs> on uh, making great cameras and, and sort of nailing that uh, yeah. and leave the software designed to other folks? To answer that, you know, the share question, yeah, I, I kind of agree think that they should i think that these camera manufacturers you know none of them have produced a particularly great um post-processing workflow tool compared to some of the you know the apertures and the light rooms out there and at some point okay i I suppose there's probably some people out there that want the off the shelf thing where they buy a camera and they get the software and they don't go beyond that yeah um and and so i guess they have to have something along those lines but really you know, they are. I've yet to see one that's even close to what you know one of the big two uh, applications can do. This one, I think, is probably. If you read the press release a little bit more, a little further down, you can see that what they're really doing is they're just leveraging uh, OS X's built-in capabilities for reading raw files. Mm-hmm. Uh, so it's not like they're. I mean, at first I was wondering if they were really jumping into um, some sort of a scenario where they felt they had algorithms for doing raw decoding that were superior and they were trying to spread that out and, and apply that to other camera manufacturers as well and, and maybe produce an alternate sort of a raw decode workflow, something that would be analogous to uh, Adobe Camera Raw. Yeah. But it doesn't look like that. It looks like they're just leveraging existing stuff, which is probably why it's coming out on the Mac first uh, and then come out on Windows later, just because it's so much easier to get that raw operating system support straight out of the Mac. So... I don't know if this is really a big a big issue or not. Steve? Yeah, I don't think you'd ever really see Nikon open up uh, their Capture NX to other manufacturers, but it kind of, I see a little bit of a hair thing happening. It kind of makes sense, though, for Hasselblad in that, you know, the market for Hasselblad is is small. I think a lot of photographers would love to, to own Hasselblad, but just, you know, it's a, it's an affordability situation. 
And, you know, the more open they are maybe to, to introduce um, photographers who, you know, someday dream of, order, of owning a, a medium format, high megapixel camera, um, it it's kind of makes sense to open it up uh, because, uh, you know, it, they've really got nothing to lose by, by being more inclusive. So that's my well, and, and, and I guess, I mean, I don't really know what the level of support for Hasselblad Digital RAW files is available in Aperture or Lightroom. So uh, it may be that it's just not good enough in one of those packages. So Hasselblad has to provide a basic, uh, or maybe not even existent, has to, Hasselblad has to provide a basic raw decoder. And by doing uh, support for additional cameras, then people can sort of have a, a single workflow. You know, if they're primarily a Hasselblad shooter, but they also happen to have you know a, a Nikon where they occasionally shoot some raw files as well. At least this way it would make it so that people wouldn't have to bounce back and forth between multiple different applications. So it may just be a convenience thing, in which case I could see it making yeah. sense. Yeah, I wonder. I wonder from yeah, a, just from a business standpoint, you know, looking at it not not from taking all the emotion out of it from a you know I can imagine that the the camera manufacturers like you know this is we're making the pixels we want to massage the pixels you know so i i understand that but from a business standpoint i wonder how much revenue the these guys are generating from these applications and does that revenue offset the well, this is the a, ties this that is they could have one. with say the apple and the adobe to help them make their products better uh, I, th- this particular one this this focus this focus spelled p h o c u s is it's, you know that's their software but it's it's free mm-hmm. so they're not looking for this as a revenue stream i think this is probably more an acknowledgement that you know, these days you have to you have to provide the full digital workflow to anybody buying a camera, even if they're not going to use it. So, it, it, you know, I see a lot of these as sort of they're obligatory. But, but don't do they have to? I mean, they could they could put they could put Lightroom in the box if uh, they it's wanted true. to. Right? They, well, they could do some kind of a bundling deal. Yeah. There's another point here, though, guys. Uh, the medium format cameras, a lot of them do not have any aliasing filters in front of their chips to give the very sharpest image as possible. And uh, consequently, for instance, uh, Capture One from Phase and the uh, Capture software from Leaf both have very, very sophisticated algorithms for get rid- getting rid of Moray uh, and doing anti-aliasing in the software. In addition... The very large chips, and the phase was famous for this, uh, when you put a super wide-angle lens on it, the, the corners of the image turn magenta. Uh, now, when I say turn magenta, I'm talking about a very, very subtle uh, color cast. Mm-hmm. And so cap, uh, phase one and the Leaf software both had special algorithms in their own software that would correct for this uh, to satisfy the demands of commercial photography. With my Vallejo 22 in the background here, I've used uh, Bridge and Adobe Camera Raw for years, and uh, Leaf was one of the first medium format cameras that Adobe Camera Raw supported. Yeah, I mean, I, I think I think just from a from a photography standpoint, you know, as speaking as putting on my photographer hat. What I would like to be able to do is make a decision on the digital asset management application that I'm going to use for everything and then have the the guys on the back end, whether it be the camera manufacturers or the software manufacturers, work together to make that experience as seamless as possible. So in that in that case, Ray, I would like to see Hasselblad and who's ever making those lenses that are that are doing the the magenta corner action there they should be providing in my opinion they should be providing that data 
back to yeah. the software guys and say, hey, you know, if you want to support this camera, make sure you 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 compensate for the these artifacts that are going to show up under this use case. I, I think that's exactly right. You know, it's and, and Ray's point is very valid that you know as you get to these more uh, you know smaller market cameras like the House of Blood, which doesn't have anywhere near the market penetration. You're going to have a lot of issues with, uh, you know, how much time would Apple or Adobe be willing to spend on uh, determining all the little idiosyncrasies with that sensor or, you know, sensor lens combinations. And I think you're right, Frederick. It's, it's, you know, the best scenario would be, number one, making sure that Adobe and Apple are willing to kind of open up their raw decoder framework so that it's easy to put something in there. Mm-hmm. Uh, and then number two, yeah, the manufacturers should then provide sort of their best guess on, on what uh, the decoding should be. Uh, and that's really something I don't think is out there from either Adobe or Apple is a mm-hmm. completely open way to sort of insert uh, custom raw decoders into the pipeline. And then there's a lot of good reasons for it. I mean, I don't know as, as well about the Adobe side of things, but having worked fairly intimately with the Apple side of raw decoders, you know, it's it's a really delicate balance between um, the quality and the speed of decoding, uh, and there's you know there's hardware considerations, making use of graphics cards. Um, so it's not a trivial thing to open up, and I can understand why it's been difficult. But on the other hand, I think it would it would be the best case scenario for the user uh, if the manufacturers could really provide what their you know all the information that they could for getting the best sort of a decode and dealing with. Things like anti-aliasing and, and debayering and, and all that sort of stuff. Yeah, right now it's brute force, right? I mean, you know, the, a new camera comes out and, th- you know, the, the guys that are making the software have to wait to get a camera body in hand and actually gen- generate some raw files real time from actual shipping hardware and then reverse engineer them and then yep. code the software to read them, you know? It exactly. seems a little backwards, you know? Yeah, <laughs> it, it does. I, I just and wonder, kind of I'm curious me. because I know that... Um, you know, there's so many more people uh, jumping into photography just because of the, you know the phenomenal technology we have at our fingertips now. And I wonder, I'm just curious. Uh, I wonder how many uh, people that buy a camera, even a DSLR, I suspect many of them uh, get deeper involved into the Lightrooms and Apertures and Photoshop's. But I suspect too, there's a, a market out there that basically just wants to use the camera and, you know, the simplest form, use the, the software that came with it just to, to see their photos and bring them to the uh, traditional places to have prints made, etc. I wonder what those numbers are. I suspect they might be bigger than, than we might uh, think, think about. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, lots of stuff to think about. I mean, and I think, I think the bottom line is this stuff hopefully is new and hopefully, you know, Steve, when you, when you have a bunch of kids and they get cameras they won't have to go through all this stuff. They'll just, you know, <laughs> everything will just work, you know. That's the, uh, you and then you'll have the opportunity to say, in my day, see? <laughs> oh, yes. Thank you, Fred. Well, of course, yes, this, is a, this is an opportunity to throw in a plug for DNG format yeah. as well, because why aren't the camera manufacturers, you know, all storing their raw files in DNG, and then we can use anybody's software to open them, you know. Exactly. And that's what Adobe created that for. You know, it's 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 open, you know, and it and they've they published a specification for DNG and there's a lot of cameras out there that are supporting DNG right now. Why aren't they all supporting it? You know, so you know, I think I think that we answer we answered that question because they want to support their own software. Why support and write to the DNG format when they don't have to? Yeah, and they, you know there are limitations by using somebody else's uh, standard. I mean, you know, the, if you if you come up with some new 
bell or whistle that you want to embed into your own raw file format, uh, you don't want to have to be, you know, wait for Adobe to say, okay, well, you will now extend the standard to include this kind of thing. Uh, no, but so, the, the DNG format has, uh, it's extensible, and you can put secret sauce in it that only your software uses. Yeah, I and, believe. And, yeah. No, and, and it's true. In, in theory, that is true. In practice, you know, I can just, 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 just the, typical scenario of you know the communication within a company versus communicating to the outside world that can still slow things down uh, and i'm sure that's what it is i mean i agree it would be great if everybody could standardize on a single raw format even you know i just don't think it's going to happen because i think these big camera manufacturers are too gun shy uh of letting anything out of their control yeah, it's interesting that we have this this debate because, you know, this whole debate that's raging between Adobe and Apple right now on open standards with regard to Flash, this is almost the reverse of it. So we're saying we're saying that we we want the the camera manufacturers to op- to to allow people to write to their format and 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 open it up. But on the other hand, you know, some people are agreeing with uh, with Apple on the side of or Adobe on the side of saying, you know, they should keep Flash the way it is and allow it to write to multiple devices. So this is it's a, it's like a spider web. It's very interesting. All this stuff. All right. Let's move on, guys. Uh, the next story uh, is a little fun. Um, it's about Sean Penn. <laughs> so <laughs> Sean Sean Penn was sentenced for attacking a paparazzi, and uh, this is, this came out of PDN Pulse uh, by David Walker, and basically it says uh, Sean Penn was sentenced to three years of probation, three hundred year or three hundred hours, three hundred hours of community <laughs> service, and thirty six hours of anger management counseling after pleading no contest to vandali- vandalism charges stemming from an incident last October in which he allegedly kicked. And punched a photographer. So that in and of itself is not really interesting. My what I wanted to talk about around this is I mean it's funny, but it's not like, you know, photography this week in photography stuff. But I think the crux to this is paparazzi in general. And I wanted to put it to you you guys, you three you know, uh paparazzi photographers, they're out there doing a job, of course, you know, but uh sometimes they get kicked and punched and should they i mean is is it steve i want to put it on you first as the the resident photojournalist on this week in photography uh paparazzi photography or photojournalism is it good or is it bad oh so you're asking me is is paparazzi (laughs) photography good i mean obviously there's a demand for it and i guess there's always been the debate that you know what what came first the chicken or the egg Uh, you know the 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 tabloids will say that they're just feeding the furnace of, of a public that has this insatiable desire to see what celebrities, uh, as we define them in our culture, are doing outside of uh, what they do professionally in movies and TV. Mm-hmm. Um, and because of that, you know, there's this group in photography that, um, you know, I, I, some of them I, I wouldn't even hesitate. It's more like bounty hunting in a way. Yeah. Um, the, you know, some of the tactics used. And, of course, you know, both are to blame. Now, the thing is, the bottom line is you can't physically touch someone um, who's doing something that, you know, you don't like. And Sean Penn, of course, has a history of that. The people around him know it. They know that they could instigate it. I'm sure these paparazzi were, were kind of egging him on. And the mm-hmm. fact is, if there's no bad publicity, this kind of thing um, isn't really going to hurt 
anybody, uh, although it But it's it, a payday for the Penn. photographer, right? I mean, you're, well, you're right. If, they, if they know, it becomes a story. And, they know, and, you know Sean Penn is a powder keg, and they get in his face and, uh, you know, stay two inches away from him with a, with a lens on his nose, you know, an inch away from his nose, he's going to hit him, and that's money, right? In journalism, you're supposed to cover the story, not be the story, and, and that's kind of what happened here. But uh, uh, I, I think you know, that's an excellent point, Steve. I mean, I, th- I think that's an excellent point that, uh, you know, a lot of these paparazzi really are crossing the line from being, you know, anything even approaching a journalist to trying to make news. Uh, in, in a case like this, where they know that if they get in a certain celebrity's face, um, there's a likelihood the celebrity is going to react. And yeah, I mean, when I say get in their face, they really are getting like right in their face. You know, I don't have a lot of sympathy for uh, one of these guys that happens to get pushed around a little bit if they do that kind of thing. And because I, I really don't think they are. You know, they're crossing that line from being a, a journalist to being a, an instigator. And, and, you know, and it's not all of them. And it's a real gray area. And clearly some of this stuff is valid. And I don't think you can just pass a law that says you can't take a picture of a celebrity either. Um, in some ways, I think it's, it's sort of where we're all going, though. I think everybody's going to have to get used to this idea that, you know, if you're out in public, there is not a whole lot of privacy. And, and you know, whether you're a celebrity or not, pretty soon there's going to be enough cameras around that you just got to assume that you're going to be photographed. Yeah. Well, of course, that brings up what constitutes uh, a threatening assault. Uh, you know, if somebody lunges at you with a camera and you think you're going to be hit by it or something, uh, you, you know, I mean, where where do you draw the line on that side of that fence? Uh, of course, we all know that the paparazzi and the movie stars, it's a synergistic thing that they play off of each other and, and whatnot. But I don't know. It uh, it seems like that that you know there are paparazzi who don't get beat up, and that's because they have some manners, yeah. and there are those who instigate it. So you know, I mean, I, I've yeah, you met a, I, I'm sorry, Ray. I guess you yeah. just really don't want to paint everybody with the same brush. But unfortunately, you know, even as photographers, we're as low as our our lowest common denominator. I don't know yeah. how many times I've been at an assignment where. You know, dealing with someone who is uh, somewhat of a celebrity or, or well-known, and they had a bad experience with a photographer that's going to affect my new experience with this person. It's, and, and that's what we got to, to, to deal with. Um, well, let's, let's, let's put time. some context around this. Um, we've, I think we've got the video. We're going to roll it real quick for the video watching audience. Uh, listeners to the audio feed, please bear with us for a couple of seconds. But let's, let's put some context around this and take a look at this, this quick video of Sean Penn uh, accosting one of our brothers. <laughs> one of our brothers. <laughs> I mean, he's, he's of course, and he's got it. no right to yeah. get physical. I mean, that's the, the one thing. He can go up to them. I mean, he was walking with purpose, and, you know, yeah. he can go up and yell at them and talk to them all, but as soon as he makes contact, you know, in the eyes of the law. And I think it I just think sort of makes sense. That was self-defense, clearly, Steve. I mean, <laughs> Sean Penn yeah. was defending himself. That guy was looking threatening with that camera. <laughs> yeah. Well, there, you know, there's a perfect example to me of Penn going way over the thing because he, he came to the photographer and the photographer was more than 10 feet away when it started. I mean, that's ridiculous. Yeah. yeah I think if you look at things like with Lady Di, right, and, and, and the paparazzi that surround that incident um you know i i just my personal opinion is i don't have a whole lot of sympathy for photographers that are that are causing things to happen i mean celebrities yes when they agree to take that big paycheck and to put themselves in the limelight 
course. Yeah. They're celebrities. It, so they, they sign up and they get a certain either certain certain things come along with that. But, you know, if you're threatening me or you're making my life bad or peering into my bedroom window, you know, with your with your 500 millimeter lens or whatever, you know, it, w- come on. You know, do you guys do you guys remember um, the I think it's relatively famous because there isn't a lot of it. Uh, footage of uh, Bernard Madoff uh, just before when he was still free and he was sort of coming, he was trying to get to his Park Avenue or wherever he was living apartment and there was a, a, a swarm of media around him and he was just kind of walking forward and one of the photographers sort of pushed him back sort of aggressively and, and that was sort of an opposite situation and uh, I don't think that was right either. I mean, although... This guy was just so vilified. I mean, nobody liked him that I think people were like, you know, that's okay kind of thing. So I think it it also it also the perception depends on who it is that's necessarily being uh, photographed or swarmed by. Yeah. Ron Brinkman, where do you fall on this? I mean, photographers uh, or paparazzi photography or paparazzo photography, is that the right thing to do? Is it just a job or is it just... You know, are they the the ambulance chasers of the photography industry? Yeah, I, I think it's pretty. Uh, <laughs> I think it's a pretty scummy profession at some <laughs> level. I mean, you know, it's certainly there are situations where it's appropriate. You know, celebrities on the red carpet or something like that. But that's a different kind of thing. It's just, you know, it's not it's not photojournalism to get a picture of somebody because that's who they are. You know, it's that's that's not. That's not telling a story. That's that's just invading somebody's privacy. And I can understand there's a market for it, and I can understand that people will buy it. Um, but I, I have no respect for it. There's no there's no art there. There's no benefit to society there. Uh, so you know, I I don't have a whole lot of sympathy. And, and you know, even the fact that Sean Penn would walk up to a guy and start sort of trying to wrestle the camera out of his hands and it turns physical. Uh, yeah, he probably cl- crossed a line, but boy, I have a lot of sympathy for that too. I, you know, in a similar situation, I can't say that I wouldn't feel like doing the same thing. Yeah, I would love to get some photos of Sean Penn in that anger management class. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> wouldn't that be ironic? <laughs> All right, guys. The next story up is uh, HBO Home Box Office True Blood, one of my favorite shows, by the way. Um, if there's rumors that it's going to be shot entirely on Canon 5D Mark IIs. So Suki with a digital SLR. What do you, what, like, Ron? Have you are you familiar with the show? I, I'm not familiar with the show, but uh, I think I think it's a really fascinating sort of a turn of events. And uh, you know, I don't, I don't, I haven't shot a whole lot with the uh, with these cameras, and I'm surprised, I guess, that it's something they would consider doing for you know as sort of the primary camera for the show. And the trade-offs, we've talked about this before, is sort of the uh, the portability and the access to probably some more interesting lenses and that sort of thing. Uh, but it kind of tells me that the actual workflow, if you you know bolt enough uh, camera rigs on it and, and b- build up a good post-production process, uh, is getting to where it's a viable thing to do. Yeah, yeah, it's, and it's cheap, right? I mean, considering these gigantic budgets that these these popular shows have per episode shooting it with a $2,500 camera and getting results that are better than what you'd get with your $300,000 camera. Well, that, and that's the question. I don't, I really doubt it's being done for cost purposes. Um, you know, I think it's probably quite honestly, it's probably partially uh, a desire to get some press off of doing it this way, you know, knowing that it'll get covered just like, like we're doing it. Uh, I, like I said, the, the convenience though of the smaller form factor uh, the accessibility of lenses and that kind of thing probably is more 
uh, more what drives it. You know, the DP may just sort of think, oh, I, mean, I enjoy doing this, uh, shooting with this kind of a camera, so why not? Yeah. Ray? Well, no, there, there are some very, very good reasons. I mean, I happen to have one here in my hand, and uh, I have shot video with it. And there are some very good reasons why the industry is very interested in this camera, and it's the size of the chip. When you go to a chip that's a full 35-millimeter format uh, and use conventional 35-millimeter lenses, uh, especially the very high-speed prime lenses, you can get extremely shallow depth of field, which you can't achieve at all with most video cameras. And so when you achieve that super thin depth of field, you can make the eyes of the actor or something just snap and everything else fade to nothing. And and so uh, there's some there's some it's the size of the chip that they're excited about. It, true, and and you know certainly more so when you're talking about video, where you tend to shoot uh, smaller format, you know, smaller chip size video cameras relative to uh, to film, where we would be, you know, and, and my background was more shooting, you know, feature film kind of stuff, where we were using you know large format uh, uh, in the sense of full 35 millimeter frame uh, film, but you know. Some of that could can be done with even the smaller chip sizes if you just use a very fast lens. So, mm-hmm. but I mean, you're right; it, it gives you a little more flexibility on that. And what you're trading off then is some of the other artifacts you get by not having as good of a uh, encoded, you know, codec. Uh, some of the rolling shutter artifacts. So, you know, I, I can, yeah, I, like I said, I can definitely see there's reasons for doing it uh, from a number of practical considerations. Um, yeah. Saying, you know, making the blanket statement though that you're going to shoot. And, and again, this is just a rumor, but a blanket statement that you're going to shoot an entire show using just a 5D, I actually doubt that's really going to be the case. Yeah, right. Well, that's, There's that's rumors that they're of... doing House as well, right? I mean, it was. Well, tonight, the, the, the final episode of House has been shot with a 5D Mark II. In its yep. entirety, and, 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 or just and, certain scenes, I in, wonder? In, no, in the entire show, uh, I, I, uh, I, sorry, I should have stuck in a. Uh, a URL for this, but they explain all the lenses they used. They used a number of the prime lenses as well as the uh, uh, 2470 and 7200 lens. On, but the entire show was shot with the 5D Mark II, and that's showing tonight. Wow, on it's, in, it's interesting to me, someone who hasn't yet explored video on my still camera, to realize that uh, these major uh, studios are committing to that camera, which, as as Ron brings up. The idea that it's uh, it's doable to use these cameras. The the downside is is not as great as as the ups that uh, Ray was talking about in terms of the new looks that you can create. And yeah. um, it's practical to to shoot an entire show with these cameras. So I mean that's that's great. That's exciting for for the little guy. I think it totally is. I think that's the point right there, Steve. You hit it right on the head. I think you know I had. Um it reminds me of I, Richard Harrington was a guest on the show, and he came down to a meetup that I do in San Jose once a month, a uh, Smug Mug meetup. And um, he gave a talk on digital SLR photography and, and how all that stuff works together. And one of the takeaways was, you know, yeah, I think he had a slide up there on the screen that showed, here's your digital SLR, and to do these cool things that you see cinematically, 
you need this, you need that, you need this, you need all these other, this constellation of objects around your digital SLR in order to pull off one of these shots that you see on screen. Now, not to say that it, not to say that to take away from or to sort of, you know, uh, push the enthusiasm down of folks that want to do this kind of photography, but I think it's, it's the opposite. I think if you have a digital SLR, say one of these 5Ds, and you're, you're have, you have aspirations to shoot video and do all this cool stuff, you can do that and do some really cool stuff without all this crazy gear around it. But then these shows like House and True Blood are showing you what can be done when you do it correctly. But it's they're doing this stuff with the same stuff that you have sitting in your camera bag in the living room. So it's almost like a tutorial. So you sit there and watch House and you're like, wow, I want to try to do that kind of shot. And they did it with the same lens that I have. So I'm going to try to do that with my kid, you know? So it's almost like watching, watching a, uh, a uh, you know, like I said, like a tutorial. Well, yeah, you, no, should, I, you I, should. I just, sorry, I just wanted to point out when I was in, um, at the Gulf Photo Plus in Dubai, um, uh, Vince Lafourette was there doing what he does, you know, using his 5D Mark II. But, you know, let's not kid ourselves. The 5D Mark II is the camera. And yes, you can have a relatively inexpensive setup as far as accessories are concerned. But for these guys, you know, the, the, the big guys that are playing with this stuff, I mean, they're using a lot of equipment that's well beyond, uh, you know, the, the, the budget of, of the vast majority of people that are going to want to experiment with video. Yeah. Yeah. It's well, all, it's all very exciting. you Ray, you were going to say something. Yeah. Uh, I have shot a fair bit of video with 5d Mark two since, uh, at least playing with it and checking it out. It is not nearly as easy to use to shoot video as a video camera. Like I have a, a Canon HV20, and it's far, far easier to handhold and keep steady and so forth. When I shoot with the 5D Mark II, I, I always shoot with, with either a a solid tripod or some kind of steady cam arrangement. I've tried it handheld and uh, it just doesn't work at all. It's uh, uh, you know you and also I found that if you're you know when they're using these professional situations, they're using a focus puller. They're using a a team of people operating this camera, and uh, so this is what I'm saying is if you're if you want to shoot home video, don't go out and buy the 5D Mark II because uh, it, it isn't an easy camera to use for video. It gets outstanding results, but it it requires a lot of studio technique to add to it to really get the kind of quality that you see on House and these shows. That's my experience. Yeah. No, I, I think that's that's excellent advice because um, I know a lot of folks, I talk to folks all the time, they're like, you know what, I was going to go buy a, um, a, you know, a, a purpose-built portable video camera and a digital slr why don't i just go buy the 5d thing and i'll have all in one but i think the the if you're not planning on doing sort of professional level video getting a purpose-built built instant on sort of uh just throw it in the corner and shoot your baby's first steps kind of thing camera is probably a better way to go because you're not going to have to think about all these other things ray like you were saying you're not going to have to think about uh pulling the focus and making sure the audio is perfect and doing all this other stuff. Um, if you want those professional results, be prepared to put the work in to get them. If you are just trying to document an event, a life event, get something that's, uh, that's going to do that. So get the right tool for the right job. 
Yeah, well, the thing I like about it, though, is that it, it does give people the ability. It actually, to bring this back to you know, still photography, uh, what I think we are going to see is people saying, you know what, I don't need to buy both cameras. Uh, so they can go ahead and buy a camera that can shoot stills and video. And I think you're going to see more people starting to experiment then with shooting still photography uh, just because they have it in hand. They've got a DSLR in hand where prior to this they may not have had something like that. So what I hope this is going to do is actually expand the the market and the, the number of people that are shooting stills just because they happen to buy a camera that can do both. Yeah, no, totally agree. All right, before we jump into the listener questions, I wanted to take this opportunity to, to ask Ray a bunch of questions, like I said at the, off the top, since he has this wide and deep knowledge around color and and how it, how it uh, relates to photography and all that magic. Um, and I'm just now scratching the surface of how all that stuff works. I just barely got my system calibrated. So, Ray, I um, wanted to just sort of ask you, like, off the top, with a... You know, say you say you're a photographer today, and you have say an iMac at home. You've got a MacBook Pro. Maybe you're, you know, you might have one of those all-in-one scanners, or maybe you have a purpose-built scanner, and maybe a pro-level um, or mid to pro, mid to high-end printer, like an Epson something or other. Fill in the blank. What should they do? I mean, because right now, I would imagine that most people out there aren't calibrated all the way through that chain. Should they be, or are things okay out of the box and just go with what you get? Well, it's my opinion. I get asked this question all the time, and the kind of baseline thing that you need to do is calibrate your monitor and calibrate it kind of monthly or so so that you keep a consistent monitor. And by the way, consistency is more important than accuracy. Uh, out of the box like that, you will never get your monitor to exactly match your prints. And I, I someday we'll, we can do a whole show on that topic because I can take you through all the different levels of color management all the way up to high-end printing companies and what they do. Ooh, but it great. gets very expensive and very involved in a lot of process control and so forth. But step one for out of the box is go buy a monitor calibrator. Uh, I highly recommend the X-Rite i1 uh, display uh, model 2. This is uh you know the low end uh, you can get in for about $150 and this will calibrate and keep your monitor constant. Now, uh Epson's own profiles that come with their uh printers are very good today and the printers themselves are are quite consistent as compared to earlier printers. So uh, you really don't have to get all the stuff to calibrate printers, and calibrating printers is considerably more difficult than calibrating uh, your monitor. So I always say step one, calibrate your monitor. Uh, do it with a colorimeter. If you want to spend $500 and go to the next step, you can get the Color Monkey, which is a true spectrophotometer. Uh, it's not a three-channel device, but it's a 24-channel device. And then you can calibrate both monitors, projectors, and printers, although the automatic calibration of printers uh, will not be perfect. Uh, you need to edit profiles after you make them. But again, I, I won't go in down a rat hole here. I, I can take you all the way through to the professional's level of color management. But baseline is start with a colorimeter, calibrate your monitor regularly, 
and use good profiles from the manufacturer that are for the specific ink set and specific paper that you'll be using. So then that, that brings up the next point. So the specific paper that you're, you'll be using. So in my own case, when I, when I first got, I have an Epson 3800 at home. Um, and I, I honestly, I've used it maybe once in the last year. Instead, I've been sending my, my, the, the things that I want prints from, I may print a small five by seven on a little Epson artisan that I have, which is a multifunction printer. But the big things, the, the important things that I've spent hours toiling on, generally, I don't want to print them on my own printer. I'm going to send them out to um, like White House Color and, and to have them print it or 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 even bay photo down here is they're awesome in the in the bay area through smug mug so if if i'm going to use a third party to print this stuff do i need to care about color or or what what's my process there if i'm if i'm not using my local printer let me ask i haven't used those particular uh printers do they send you a profile of their printing system. They have downloadable profiles on their websites. Good. Yep. Okay, good. That that's the that's what you want. And uh you then want to convert from your working color space into their profile space and uh and send it to them. That's excellent because a lot of the uh places don't send out their profiles and you know, that's a real can of worms. Yeah. Uh my recommendation, that's the next step up in uh quality is if your printer sends you a profile and you convert to their profile space uh, and do your final tweaks and then send your files to them, that's the way to go. I, what were you going to say, ask, Steve? Yeah, I was just going to ask a question because you know this whole idea of printing, just today I was speaking to a student um, at ICP who graduated in 2008, and she's working as an assistant, and the new crop of students at ICP are printing less and less and less, and and I think that, you know, the printing companies and, and everybody involved with printing has a bit of a problem with the iPad coming out and digital frames. And, and you even said yourself, um, Frederick, that you're not printing very much. I think that photographers are not printing as much as they used to. And, yeah. and I don't necessarily see that changing. I'm, I'm not, I love the printed image, of course, and, and I think it's, the, you know, the ultimate for display. But I don't know, what are your guys' experience? Do you think that... Uh, the idea of, of printing your work is 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 slowly um, you know taking a uh, is is getting I, less. I less. totally agree with you. In fact, I'm I'm going to be selling that 3800 Twip listeners. Um, <laughs> <but it's, laughs> I'm getting rid of it because I haven't I haven't printed much. And and when I like like you're like you're saying, Steve, when I do print, I'm going to print it through you know like like Bay Photo here. And if I'm not printing, which is very rarely, I'm going to share everything online. It's either going to be you know, on Smug Mug, on Flickr, wherever. It's going to be someplace where millions, hopefully, of people will look at it, not just the one or two that I can expose to my dead tree. I don't know. Ron, what do you think? Yeah, I, I mean, I, it's been a really long time since I've printed anything either. And, and I, you know, the color management part of it, uh, it gets interesting because you're, anytime you're putting something online, you lose control of the last piece of the process. So you really don't have a color managed scenario in the sense that, Everybody's monitor that's you know is going to be looking at your work online is is not calibrated or is calibrated differently. So, about all you can do is hope that there's sort of a baseline uh, that that is out there and sort of tune your images to look good with that and, and know that you know 
generally go out to sRGB because a lot of browsers don't even you know, sort of take that as the default. Don't even man- let you manage color beyond that. Uh, but yeah, I don't. You know, printing is I think a very niche sort of a market these days, which is why I think you're seeing a lot of people saying I don't need to have a really nice printer because I will send it out because I'm probably only going to print you know, two or three times a year of uh, something that I really want to get on on a piece of paper. Yeah, I'm looking in the chat room now, and, and uh, some of the folks, I think it was Eric in there saying, uh, uh, is wondering if we, do do people ever put anything away? Like, are, and that's a good point. I mean, do, do you, if, if we're completely in the ether, if we're completely digital, everything's zeros and ones, uh, and there's no physical representation of this stuff, is it lost, you know, later? We shoot all this stuff and then we have the, di- the, the digital equivalent to a shoebox that, you know, that, that sort of just goes away. So in that case, should we be printing our most important things on archival paper and putting it in a safety deposit box somewhere in case the big one hits? I don't yeah, know. I think, yeah, absolutely we should be doing that. And, you know, arguably we've talked about this before. That might be the most archival way of dealing with digital photography, and that is to make hard copy images um, of our best work. I think it's great. I think it's a great idea. But, you know, as our lives get busier and busier, I think uh, less and less people have the, the, the opportunity to do or make the opportunity to do that. But, uh, yeah, I, I think that makes perfect sense. Although, you know, who's got time for it? I don't know. Just and, wait. and there's, there's, a co- you know, there's a real cost associated with mm-hmm. that, too. I mean, I would, I would argue that the best method of archiving at this point is uh, uploading it to some photo sharing sites, you know. Yeah. distribute its availability so that it's out there on Flickr and it's also on some local backup you have and, you know, a friend's got a copy of it and you know, that's the only real way you're going to be able to ensure that it's out there is put it uh, put it somewhere in the cloud and make it accessible so that people can, you know, at some level even so that people can share it uh, yeah. and distribute it even further. Says the man yeah. with reams and reams of dead paper behind him in the show. <laughs> <laughs> those, are, those are books. That's different. <laughs> But well, you can still be buying Kindle or i or iBook editions of those, right? Right. I I, I fully acknowledge the fact that uh, my relationship to buying <laughs> dead tree books is uh, is a bit of a luddite sort of thing, but I don't care. <laughs> It'll, you, that'll be your your private little thing. Uh, it's like it's, artwork at this point. It's just you know, it's really really nice. It's very thick wallpaper. Yeah, yeah. I don't know. I mean, sometimes books are better, but you know, I have to. I have to say that you know, I, I'll, I'll reveal that I how geeky I am. I love comic books, and I've been reading. Uh, I'm a Marvel fan, so I've been reading um, the catching up on the Iron Man series, which I can't, of course, because of the movie, but which I couldn't like subscribe to because they, you know, they come and you don't read them, whatever. But I've been buying them on my iPad, and it has reinvigorated my interest in in the 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 comic book art form so it's uh it's you know it's but you know on the same token i want the printed one too because i want to put it in a little sleeve and put it away so nobody sees it you know and that's honestly that's that's the way i am too is you know i will tend to buy i mean i can turn my camera here and show you the uh the pile actually the the little corner back there is the graphics novel section but um I you know I I I will often buy a book. I'll sometimes find myself you know having three copies of a book. I'll have a, an audible version of it. I'll have the uh, an electronic version of it, and I'll have uh, an actual printed version of it. And I will almost always end up buying a printed version of a book if I read it in some other form, just to sort of have it. And, you know, and I mean it's fine. I'll buy it used and only spend two or three dollars on it, so it's not a big deal. But 
Yep. I like having the printed version still. Yeah. Now, Ray, are you are you printing just to bring it back and, and close this off? Are you do you find yourself printing still, or are you are you going more digital? Well, I I split it up. I mean, I do share my photos online. Uh, if you want to see them, you can look at photo.net slash photos slash Raymax, and the R and M are capitals. That's uh, R A Y M A X with capitals R and M. Uh, but I am primarily a printmaker, and I, I belong to a group here in town that is not a photo club. We, you know, call ourselves a printmaking club, and everyone makes their own prints in this group. And so I, I do. I have a certain fascination with printmaking, and part of it is my printing background in my, you know. Uh, but I, I used to make uh, prints. Uh, someone said, do you have the time? Uh, I used to make color prints in a wet dark room, so I think printing on digitally is really fast. <laughs> and uh, uh, but I no, I am a printmaker, and but I do share things uh, online as well, and and distribute things uh, digitally. And by the way, uh, Safari, uh, the Firefox, you can turn on color management in those browsers. And you can put your pictures up with profiles in them for those that do calibrate their monitor. Uh, you can put them in the sRGB space for people who don't. So there are ways of communicating digitally over, you know, uh, over the Internet and getting the color uh, quite reasonably for the people who calibrate. And the other people are going to see it the best they can in any case. Okay, here, here's here's the last question for you, Ray. Um, and I apologize, I'm picking your brain, but I have you here. Um, <laughs> the uh, one of the things that sort of vexes me, and I found a reason to use the word vex. See, it's that words with friends game on the iPads. Give me. <laughs> <laughs> um, so one of the things that vexes me uh, with printing is is the color space thing. So if I'm if I'm on my display at home and I'm editing, I'm doing all this cool stuff. Um, and then I want to send it to my printer, not the, my physical printer, but to a, a, a print service provider, and I have to switch it over to their color space. They're going to be using sRGB, Adobe RGB, um, any number of different flavors of RGB, which each is representing different spaces within that color, within the RGB color space, right? So how do I know that the red that I have in my image is going to match the red that's going to show up on the print? How do, how do I make that perfect? Well, if if they say we print in this color space and send you a profile of that color space, you can then switch to that color space in Photoshop, and if we want, someday I can take everyone through the steps. And you can preview, if you have a calibrated monitor, uh, a good approximation of what they're going to see uh, when they get that file from you. So that's definitely possible to predict what kind of results you're going to get back. It won't be perfect, uh, and someday I'll go into all the reasons why that's true, but it'll be much closer than just shooting in the dark or sending them an unprofiled uh, file. Is that, that's soft proofing, right? So if you, if you enable soft proofing in Photoshop, and I think Aperture does it. I don't think Lightroom has it yet, but you can, you can get a, a close representation of which colors are going to go muddy on you when you send to print, correct? That's correct. Mm -hmm. Okay, cool. All right, uh, we're going to jump into listener questions now. Um, we're running out of time, so I'm just going to give this um, 
uh, we're going to do one question. This one is from Toma. Ray, I'm going to throw this one at you, so uh, give it a whirl. Okay, well, Toma uh, is uh, worried about megapixels, and he says, uh, I'm going to condense what he's saying here. Uh, he, he basically says, uh, you know, they're cramming more and more megapixels into a smaller and smaller chip, and this increases the noise. Well, it actually does three things. It increases the noise, it reduces the dynamic range, and you run into what uh, is called diffraction limits from your lenses the smaller your pixels. So uh, the more pixels you cram into a smaller and smaller chip, you run into three limiting problems. And he was suggesting averaging surrounding pixels uh, to get rid of the noise. He was only addressing the noise. And the trouble with that is if you start averaging surrounding pixels, you're essentially blurring the image. So you give up resolution in favor of a smoother picture to get rid of the noise. Uh, if you want to read an article that I wrote that addresses part of this topic, more the diffraction limiting, uh, you can go to uh, luminouslandscape.com, uh, Michael Reichman's site out of Toronto, and that's luminous-landscape.com. And if you search for uh, brick wall, is uh, I'm, I'm forecasting that the megapixel race is going to hit a brick wall due to the physics physical limitations of light. Light is, you know, the wavelengths of light are the, that you're writing with are the final limit here. And uh, you're, you're going to see a leveling off in the megapixels race is what I'm forecasting. But the averaging technique only works if you do multiple shots. And by the way, uh, astrophotographers that shoot uh, dim objects in, through a telescope do this all the time. They'll shoot four, five, ten images and then average them to get rid of the noise so it is possible but not with a single shot wow yeah i definitely have to read that article brick wall i want to i'm anxious to hear uh, ron brinkman's take on that the brick wall theory ron do you think we're 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 hitting that wall soon well you know the the way to get around it is to have bigger sensors or to have multiple sensors uh which is really where i think this is, is going to go i've said this before but i think at some level you know, rather than trying to stick one big lens in front of one big sensor, you can have multiple lenses in front of multiple sensors. You end up getting uh, better depth information out of that, which you can then post-process. It, it gets further and further down the road of computational photography where you're, you're relying more and more on post-processing before you can see an image. Um, but, yeah, you know, there's there are definitely at some point you, you, the, wavelength, the wavelength of light uh, is going to get, you know, if a sensor gets smaller than that or even uh, close to that size, you start having artifacts based on it. Sort of going back to the original question, the one point to make, a lot of people think, you know, if I have twice as many photo sites and then I average it down to get, you know, an image size that's the equivalent of a lower resolution thing, I'll, uh, it's sort of the same thing. But the best visualization I've seen of this is if you take, you know, four dimes and you put them in the shape of a square, uh, on the desk in front of you, you know, just just take four dimes. Now, draw a circle around those four dimes, the sort of smallest circle you can fit that surrounds all of them. The difference between the area that's covered by those four dimes and all the other sort of stuff in between where that circle is, you know, that's a huge difference in the amount of light that you can capture there. Uh, and so, there, you know, depending on the, the way it's set up, you're always going to be in a better light-gathering uh, situation if you can have a larger sensor versus several smaller sensors crammed in the same area, there's always going to be some throwaway space that's taken up by the electronics of the framework. 
Yeah. Now, Steve, I'll, I'll flip the question a little bit and, and put it to you. I know you're shooting with a D3 on the Nikon side. I don't know if it's an S or an X, but you have a high ISO sensitivity and presumably all the pixels you can eat. Do you have enough pixels? Um, <clears throat> well, I, I think that, yes, the short answer is I do have enough pixels. And, you know, Nikon has opted to work on, um, you know, the high ISO sensitivity and quality issue as opposed to providing more pixels, which they, you know, can do as they do in the D3X. I think a lot of photographers have come to the realization that as much as they kind of ask for more resolution, the reality is very few people necessarily have a need for more resolution. If I'm working on a specific project where I know I want to make these giant prints, then yes, I would love to have uh, you know a D3X or a medium format, a uh, large mega megapixel Hasselblad, um, because it makes sense in that regard. But I think you know for the vast majority of us, um, you know it's it's just it creates problems. You know, it creates bigger files, computer sluggishness, uh, storage issues, and and the reality is most of us, uh, when we really think about it, are not willing to go down that road because uh, it's not something that we're going to see a benefit benefit from. So I think that, uh, you know, we will start to see, I'm sure, um, more megapixels. But, uh, you know, as Ron mentioned, I think the future um, with a lot of digital photography is going to be some sort of, uh, you know, HDR situation where the, the sensor is capable of, of, of uh, capturing, you know, highlight and shadow detail um, in a different way than we do now so that... Uh, you know, we'll have just, you know, such amazing uh, possibilities when it comes to, to post-processing. Yeah, and on that day, Skynet will become aware and will be in <laughs> trouble. <laughs> All right, guys, let's jump into the tips or the picks of the week. Um, Ray, I'll let you go first since you are the, you're the first one on the show or the, you're the newest to the show. Uh, all right. Uh, my, uh, I just got Adobe Photoshop CS5. And uh, I'm uh, I've fallen in love, and uh, the feature I want to talk about is the uh, uh, the awareness, the content aware fill. Mm -hmm. uh, what this means is that if uh, if you want to, for instance, make your canvas larger uh, on either side of the picture, you need a little more image. Uh, you can select those areas on either side of the image and say. Uh, fill content aware and it will look at the picture this borders on magic and fill out the sides of the picture with you know if there's a fence it'll make more fence if there's a wall it'll make more wall uh it's just borders on magic and i've been having a lot of fun with it uh playing with it and getting the aspect ratio of the final image the way I want rather than the way it was shot on that occasion or if there were telephone wires in the way or what have you. But uh, it allows you to do some incredible things. Now, it's not right for photojournalists because you're manipulating the picture, but for the, for the uh, landscape and art photographer, it's uh, a dream. So that's my, my tip. I saw it. I, I was just looking over the web last night, and one of the, one of the sites that's in my bookmark list of, of photographers to look at almost daily is Joe McNally's blog and he's got a post up there I think it was somewhere Arizona or something uh, and he's got a photo of himself sitting on the rock and then uh, he draws a, a selection around it and then now he's no longer sitting on the rock you know <laughs> so it's, it's magic I, you know honestly I wish I wish I'm gonna get CS5 too eventually I don't have it yet but 
I wish I could buy a content aware fill plugin for CS4. That's what I want right now. Right. You know, let me buy the pieces of CS5 that I want and plug them into CS4, and then maybe I'll make the jump. You know, later. But that's a different story. Hey, uh, Ron, what is your pick? All right, I just came across this one uh, yesterday. There's a company that was having a little open house uh, at a store near me, and it's kind of neat. So I thought I'd call it out. It's the uh, Wowie Power Base portable speaker uh it's a little device about the size of i don't know a couple of iphones uh stacked on top of each other it's a portable speaker but the thing that's kind of unique about it uh is that in addition to sort of a an upward facing small speaker it's designed to kind of uh sit on a solid surface and transfer the vibrations to that surface so that the surface itself ends up acting like uh, a speaker so we almost get a little subwoofer effect from it it's a small battery-powered device, and the reason I thought it might be appropriate to mention to people uh, is that I can really see it being used in a scenario where you've got something like an iPad and you want to show off your portfolio to somebody, but you don't want to carry you know, a big speaker system to pump out uh, whatever music you want to put in the background. Uh, you can kind of take this along and, and hook it to the table, just set it on the table, uh, and it really gives some interesting you know, deep bass uh, capabilities to your, your speaker system. It's a little pricey at 80 bucks, and uh, you know, not having used it in a real-world scenario, I'm not quite sure how it compares to just buying outboard speakers. It's got a, you know, a built-in battery that they say lasts for like 10 hours. Um, but I don't know. I'll, I'll put a link to it, and people can kind of uh, take a look at it and see if it's uh, interesting or not. I thought it was, it was kind of neat, and it's sort of a different take on an external speaker. Awesome. All right. Steve Simon, what do you got for us? Well, I, I don't know if you know, but I was desperately looking for my pick of the week, which I couldn't find, so I'll <laughs> save that for another week. And uh, I'll just talk about this little accessory I got for my camera, and I know a lot of manufacturers make it. It's just a, a magnifying eyepiece that allows you to see almost 100% of the view inside the viewfinder, but it magnifies just a little bit, which can make a difference if you're having to do manual focus and your eyes aren't just quite perfect as they should be. And I, I, because I was playing around with a uh, tilt-shift lens, which you have to manually focus, um, I found that the slight magnification of the magnified um, eye cup or viewfinder eyepiece uh, makes a very good positive difference for me in terms of being able to really hit my manual focus uh, and be sort of tack sharp on it, which, as we know, is, is really important. And uh, you know, for the for the D3, D3S, it's the DK17M, but they make it, you know, cross manufacturers uh, um, and for different cameras as well. Very cool. Yeah, I've seen those around. I, I definitely want to play around with that. Seems like it'd be uh, a, a must to uh, to shoot in bright sunlight for sure. All right, my pick of the week is um, it's an event that's happening this week. It's called Portfolio Jam. Uh, they're doing two of them. One's in Pismo Beach, California. The other one's in Paso Robles, California. Um, and what this is is it's a uh, it's an event that's free, um, and basically a bunch of photographers show up, a bunch of models show up, and the photographers shoot the models. They do what comes naturally to photographers you just shoot cool stuff out there at these exotic locations in paso and uh in pismo it's on the 22nd and 23rd i'm pretty sure those are the dates but um hit me on twitter and i will i'll send you a link to this stuff we'll put them in the show notes but the show's not going to go up 
um, until right before this event. So send me a, send me a link or send me a, a message on Twitter and I'll send you the link if you're interested in going. I think I may head down, not 100% sure yet, but uh, I'll let you know on Twitter if I'm planning on going. And with that, guys, we're coming up on the end of the show. Ray Maxwell, where can people go to find out more about you and the stuff that you're involved in? Well, the main thing is uh, look up Maxwell's House on twit.tv. And uh, you can also find an archive of my earlier programs, which, by the way, shows 56, 57, and 58 uh, are hour-long discussions on monitor calibration, printer calibration, and basic color science. So uh, if you, you can listen to the audio version on iTunes or you can go to odtv.me and see the video versions of those shows. So uh, that's uh, – and now Maxwell's House, we – the producers have asked me to focus on aviation because I'm also an aviation nut. And uh, so I tell all about flying gliders and hot air balloons and power planes and float planes and that sort of stuff. And that, uh, that's broadcast here on the Twit Network live on Thursday afternoons at uh, 2 p.m. Awesome. Awesome. You're, you're busy. <laughs> all right. Steve Simon, where are, where are you at in the ether? Uh, I am at stevesimonphoto.com on Twitter slash Steve Simon and in the June issue of Digital Photo Pro magazine, people know that know me know I'm a Nikon guy, and I'm I'm in a Nikon ad uh, in the back of the in the back cover of the magazine, so you can check that out. I saw that. I saw that. Yeah, Congratulations yeah. on that. Thank you. Thank you very much. Yeah, that was kind of nice. Yeah, very cool. All right, Ron Brinkman, where where are you located? Uh, best place is still on Twitter, which I still manage to get to at least occasionally. It's just Ron Brinkman, R-O-N-B-R-I-N-K-M-A-N-N. And how's your blog doing? Have you updated your blog? Yeah, my blog's a little bit like a stagnant lake right now. Cob- cobweb <laughs> blog? Yeah. I was thinking more stagnant, like there's probably mosquitoes growing it, and there's a green sort of fuzzy ooze thing growing on top of it. Wow. Okay. All right. <laughs> Don't go to Ron's blog. <laughs> but, but, but I have a couple of really good ideas for blog posts that have been, you know, thinking about writing. You need to perfect that that thought to text plugin for your yes, brain. Yes, I do. <laughs> All right. And remember, if you'd like to keep track of This Week in Photography, you can join our Facebook fan page or our Flickr group. Both are accessible from our official website at twiplog.com. And if you're looking for me, Frederick Van Johnson, you can keep up with me over at frederickvan.com or at my new marketing firm, mediabytes.com. That's M-E-D-I-A-B-Y-T-E-S dot com. And of course, over on Twitter at twitter.com forward slash Frederick Van. And that's it for this week's show. And as always, it is time to take that lens cap off. Uh